This podcast covers serious crimes and subject matter that may be distressing to some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to True Crime on Our Minds. I'm Dawn, and with me is my co-host and sister, Debbie. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. No, you're very welcome. So I wanted to tell you before we get started that I'm loving my renovated closet slash recording studio. It's nice not to have to sit on the floor with my legs going numb while I record, and I have a whole little space all set up. It's so cozy. You have to come back and help me reorganize more of my house. Oh, yeah. Just buy me a ticket and I'll be out there. Should be able to get them pretty cheap this time. How are you holding up with all the COVID-19? Well, it's challenging. I'm working from home a couple days a week and going into the office for now a couple days a week. We're trying to kind of switch staff half on, half off. But just so many changes constantly. And now that I'm out of the legal industry and into the accounting industry, and it's tax season, just trying to juggle all of that and keep everybody informed, our clients informed, our employees informed. It's, it's a lot. Thankfully, my whole family is healthy. And so that's a plus. Well, we really aren't seeing much changes here. As you know, I work in the hospital. So obviously, we don't get to work from home. But even at the hospital, other than we're not allowing visitors on our unit, we're not seeing much changes there. I mean, we're healthcare. We always practice hand hygiene. I always practice it outside of work, and my husband already worked from home. Our kids are grown, so we don't we, we don't really go anywhere anyway. I feel for everybody out there who is being affected because restaurants are closed, bars are closed, a lot of businesses are laying people off. So outside of our little circle, a lot of us are being affected and just day to day, like depending on how long this goes on and what kind of effects it has on business, I could be out of a job. So I'm just hoping that everything blows over quickly and everybody gets the support that they need. I think the most important thing is for people just to be kind to each other. And, and we're all under a lot of stress, but just be supportive of each other, I think will help the situation a lot. Yes. So want to get started? Sounds good to me. Our story today takes place in Jacksonville, Florida, which is where our parents are from. We have a lot of great memories spending summers and holidays visiting Florida, Jacksonville, and other parts. So I'm guessing you have a fact or crap for us. Yes, I do. I was born in Jacksonville, as a matter of fact. So like you said, our story takes place in St. John's County, with the closest and largest city being Jacksonville. In fact, Jacksonville is the largest city in the continental U.S. with over 840 square miles. It was named for General Andrew Jackson, the first military governor of Florida, who in fact never visited Jacksonville. Found that kind of funny. Yeah, that is interesting. By 1916, over 30 movie companies operated in Jacksonville with actors such as Oliver Hardy and Fatty Arbuckle performing there. But citizens soon began to complain about the noise, so the industry was moved to California. In 1956, Elvis Presley performed one of his first indoor concerts here at the Florida Theater. A local judge sat through the performance to make sure his moves were not too suggestive. I wonder if our mom went to that. Elvis Presley died on my ninth birthday, so. And as we know, I live in Memphis, which is, you know, where he lived. So that's uh, kind of a tie in there. And there's a good possibility that mom, our mother, went to that concert because she was living there then. We'll have to ask her. Yeah. In 1955, the Prudential Building, where our grandparents worked and retired from, was the tallest building in the South at the time at 22 stories. 22 stories. That was the tallest. (laughs) Today, it's known as the Aetna Building. All right. For our fact or crap, the St. John's River is one of the few rivers in North America that flows North instead of South. Uh, I'm going to say fact. It is a fact. The St. John's River does flow north. Most rivers do run south, like the Mississippi River is one, but it flows north. Is that the where mom had her apartment that time? Was it yeah. on the St. John's? That's what I thought. Yeah, it was on the St. John's River. Mm-hmm. It was so pretty. Our Uncle Louie had a house on the St. John's River, too. Remember that big mausoleum? Oh, yeah, that big, tall 
rectangle looking one. Yeah. yeah. I like that house though. It had like, I don't know, six floors and like 10 levels or something like that. It was really pretty. Okay, well, let's get started. So this episode is on the murder of Nancy Canode. We became aware of this case last October when Debbie and I had taken a trip back to our hometown of Charleston, South Carolina for the Southern True Crime Podcasters Meetup. And that was a really good time. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? Yes, we sure did. Um, anyway, my dear friend Joanne joined us. And after seeing what all the hubbub of true crime was, she told us about this case. She knew of it because one of Nancy's daughters, Suzanne, is married to Joanne's cousin. And as coincidence would have it, I found out later that one of our own cousins, Maria, is a friend of Suzanne's. They went to high school together, but really didn't get to know each other until years later through mutual friends when Suzanne was in the Navy and Maria's husband was in the Navy. They would go out and through mutual friends, they met each other again. So by covering this case, hopefully we will have some impact. This is our first unsolved case. I'd been wanting to do one for a while because these are the cases we really need to keep talking about in order to hopefully one day get resolution and justice for the victims and their families. And this has been especially difficult in this case. Nancy's daughters, Cherie and Suzanne, feel strongly that there is a viable suspect in the murder and really only one person that should be considered a suspect. However, they faced major roadblocks in their quest for justice. And we'll get into that further in the podcast and how you, our listeners, can help with that. So Nancy Canode was an attractive housewife with dark hair who enjoyed camping and spending time with her son and two daughters from her first marriage. We'll post photos of Nancy on our Facebook page and website. She really was beautiful. She just was absolutely stunning. And from what we read while researching this episode and talking with her daughters, she was just as beautiful on the inside. The former secretary met her second husband, Kenneth Canode, at the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, where they were both very active members. Canode was also a Sunday school teacher, and Nancy was described as God-loving and God-fearing. They married in September 1979 and moved to the Fountains Condominiums near Sawgrass on Florida A1A. Nancy's son and oldest daughter, Cherie, were out of the house. However, her youngest daughter, Suzanne, lived in the condo with the newlyweds. The couple seemed to be happy to those around them, but according to one of her daughters, Nancy was concerned that her husband owed a, quote, lot of money to some really bad men. Sadly, just 18 months after their wedding, Nancy would be brutally murdered. The morning of March 3rd, 1981 started out like most mornings. Around 6.40 a.m., 15-year-old Suzanne headed out the door for Fletcher High School where she was a sophomore. Canode left at the same time, headed to Georgia on a business trip for his job as an insurance salesman. Around 3 p.m. that afternoon, Suzanne arrived home from school threw her books on the sofa, and called out for her mother. After getting no response, she headed upstairs to look for her. Suzanne stated, I walked up the stairs and I saw my mother's feet just inside of her bedroom, along with a lot of blood. Instead of going into the room, she called the police. Suzanne then ran to a neighbor, Doris Cadenhead, screaming that her mother was dead. When police arrived, they found 39-year-old Nancy face down on her bedroom floor with a rope around her neck and through her mouth like the bit on a horse. She had been stabbed repeatedly with an ice pick and a kitchen knife, which the killer had left on her back along with bloody finger smears down between her shoulder blades. There was indication that she had been sexually assaulted before and after the attack. The official cause of death would turn out to be strangulation. During the autopsy, it was determined that Nancy was not raped. However, there was semen. Canoe told investigators that he and Nancy had had sex the night before. Though the crime scene showed that there were signs of a struggle, there didn't appear to be any indication of forced entry. So no broken windows or doors forced open. The sliding glass back door, however, was found unlocked and the wooden dowel that was used in the track to block the door from being opened was found nearby, which was unusual. It was stated that Nancy kept the doors locked and secure when she was home alone. I used to do the same thing with any place I lived in that had a sliding door. 
we always had a wooden handle that we placed in the track to stop anyone from opening the door. Yeah, so did we. As a matter of fact, I think we still do that. Investigators also discovered tire tracks and other evidence that led them to believe that the back door was the entry and exit point for the killer. The Canodes condo was located in a secluded area of the gated and guarded complex. There was a dirt road that ran around the perimeter of the complex from the back corner where the Canode condo was located to Highway A1A. Two witnesses had stated that they saw a blue car on that dirt path the morning of the murder, but the investigators determined that the car was seen parked so far away from the Canodes condo that it was unlikely it had anything to do with the murder. Nancy's jewelry box was found laying open on the bedroom floor, but none of the jewelry was missing, and there was no indication that anything else was stolen from the home. The phone in the bedroom was found neatly hung up, which seemed a little unusual given the circumstance and indications of a struggle. The only fingerprints found in the condo were those of Kenneth Canode, Nancy, and Suzanne. In the kitchen was a note from Canode reading, Honey, call you when I get in town. Love, Ken. So, just to back up a little, the day Nancy was murdered, Loretta Brown, a Southern Bell operator, received a call from a frightened woman frantically begging for help. In 1981, you had to call the operator in order to reach the police because the 911 emergency service was not established throughout the United States. According to Brown, the caller pleaded, quote, Operator, get me the police emergency. Then the caller cried, quote, oh, God, before the phone went dead. Now, this call took place about 20 minutes after Canode and Suzanne left the condo, leaving Nancy home alone. On February 6, 2015, the television show Cold Justice aired an episode called Operator Hurry, which covered the murder of Nancy. At the beginning of the episode, there was a taped interview with Brown discussing the emergency call she received that day. She stated that during the interview, the call went dead before her supervisor could tap into the call and that there was no way at the time to determine where the call originated from. So I'm guessing that this emergency call was later determined to have been Nancy? Yes, I think so. Perhaps once they looked at her phone records, they saw that she had made the call. Anyway, Brown's statement contradicts written reports about the case, which state that officers did, in fact, respond to the Fountains condominium complex, but they didn't see or hear anything suspicious, so they didn't file a police report. I guess that doesn't make sense to me, since according to Brown, the woman did not give a name or address, and the call was disconnected before it could be traced. And that is also why it seemed out of place for the bedroom phone to be hung up neatly. There wasn't any blood on it or any indication that she was attacked while holding it. So did she hang it up on the operator or did the assailant? This whole report about the call and whether officers did or did not respond was very confusing. How would officers even know where to respond? It's not like they had the technological capabilities that they have now. Well, and I looked up how long it takes to trace a phone call and read an article that said since the mid-80s, Landlines could be traced immediately since electronic switching systems replaced automatic electro-mechanical switching system. So I wonder if they could go back after the call was disconnected and see where it originated from. But in that case, wouldn't the police who allegedly responded go to the residence instead of just the complex? I don't, I don't know. I, it's really hard to understand what happened or is suspected to have happened. It really is. I'm guessing that there was no recording of the call since it went through the operator. When Canode was interviewed, they asked him how he knew about the emergency call because this was information that the police held back. You know, sometimes they'll hold back information until they have a suspect. Well, the emergency call was one of those pieces that they withheld. Canode stated that he had a high school friend that worked for Southern Bell and that that friend had given him the information. When first pressed for the name of the friend, Canode declined to name him because he said he didn't want the source to get in trouble with his employer. But after further questioning, he gave the friend's name as Jimmy Stokes. When police contacted Stokes, he confirmed that he knew Canode from high school, but that he didn't tell him about the call. In fact, he said as a lineman for the phone company, he didn't even have access to that kind of information, 
And even if he did, he would not have given it out because it was against the company's policy. So just how did Canode know about the call? Kenneth Canode later sued the sheriff's office, claiming that their negligence in failing to respond to the emergency call contributed to his wife's death, but that case was ultimately dismissed. Wow, that's really interesting and very confusing. I mean, it's like somebody wasn't telling the truth somewhere and either the police responded or they didn't respond. But I'm really still kind of confused on how they knew that that call was actually Nancy, which I think that they believe maybe they didn't get that many calls like that and kind of just put two to two together. I'm assuming that at that time, too, there weren't a whole lot of violent crimes in that area. So maybe that's what they're assuming or going on. But it is pretty interesting. Yes. And um, how Kenneth knew about it, too, if it wasn't put out there, unless, you know, he was one possible way would have been if he was at the residence when that call was placed. But that's just speculation. Yeah, true. Yeah. As we mentioned, Kenneth Canode had traveled to Georgia that day on a business trip. He was still there when he received word that there was an emergency and he needed to return home immediately. Canode drove his own vehicle back to Jacksonville with a police escort. Arriving at the condo, he asked to view his wife's body and was permitted to do so, actually twice. One detective on the scene, Neil Perry, noted that Canode's reaction seemed to be flat and unemotional. Nancy's older daughter, Sherry, who was 19 at the time, agreed with Perry's assessment of Canode. Describing the moments after she learned about her mother's murder, Shuri told reporters, quote, I was at work when I got the call and I remember driving what must have been 120 miles an hour the entire way to the condo. But when I got to the condo, the one thing that really stuck with me was him. That man did not shed a single tear. During an interview for the Cold Justice episode, Suzanne and Shuri said that they didn't recall Canode even speaking much to them until the funeral. They also stated that other family members found this behavior to be odd. Detectives had several theories regarding who had committed the crime, with the first being that it was a robbery gone wrong. But this was quickly dismissed as there was nothing stolen from the home. Next theory was that a random attacker had entered the home and assaulted and killed Nancy. Allegedly, investigators received a jailhouse confession from known serial killer Henry Lee Lucas of Blacksburg, Virginia. Lucas was the abused son of a prostitute who would dress him up as a girl and make him watch her performing sex acts with men when he was a young boy. Ugh, I know. Just very disturbing. At the age of 24, Lucas got into a fight with his mother and he murdered her. He was sentenced to 20 years in jail. However, he was released just in 10 years due to prison overcrowding. Lucas made his way to Jacksonville, where he hooked up with Otis Toole, another demented killer. Lucas and Toole traveled back and forth between Texas and Florida, killing people along the way. Investigators discovered that Lucas's story did not match the evidence in Nancy's murder, and he eventually recanted his confession. This seemed to be a pattern for Lucas, as he had falsely confessed to other murders as well. Yeah, I've heard other podcasts on Lucas, and he's a pretty scary guy. He was convicted for killing 11 people. However, he allegedly confessed to killing over 100 others. But of those, only three are considered probable. So ruling out robbery and Lucas, investigators turned their attention to those close to Nancy, starting with her husband, Kenneth Canode which is, you know, I, that's not unexpected. They always look at people closest to the victim first. Yeah, they start inside and work out as, you know, that, right. that's pretty standard. Detectives followed up on Canode's whereabouts the day of Nancy's murder. Eyewitnesses recalled seeing him in Georgia at some point that day. Suzanne, however, reported that though she and her stepfather walked out of the house together, he did not leave immediately. Instead, he sat in his car for approximately six minutes before driving off. Canode defended his actions by saying he was making sure Suzanne, who was waiting on a ride from a friend, actually left for school. If you look at the time frame, adding in the emergency call, it is plausible that investigators would consider Canode a suspect. The emergency call took place approximately 20 minutes after he and Suzanne left. It's not a stretch to consider that he could have circled back around to the condo, 
coming up the path behind the house, killed Nancy, and then headed to Georgia. Depending on where he was going, it's just a couple of hours drive. Add to that Sherry's report regarding her mother's concern over her husband's financial problems and the fact that Canode had taken out a life insurance policy on Nancy just two months before the murder, one that would pay double in the event of violent death, and he starts to look like a really viable suspect. Although most of that is just circumstantial. Canole told investigators that as an insurance salesman, taking out the policy just seemed like the right thing to do. And it makes me wonder if he had a policy on himself as well, or if that was even looked into. I mean, if he felt it was important enough to insure his wife, including in the event of a violent death, then wouldn't it make sense that as an insurance salesman to ensure that there was a policy on him as well so that Nancy would be covered in the event of his death? I mean, she was a housewife at the time, and he was the one that was traveling for business, so it seems like he'd be more at risk. When Chris and I were first married, we had policies on each other. He was in the military, and it was important for us to ensure that there wouldn't be a financial burden should one of us pass away unexpectedly. So I guess I'm also wondering why, as an insurance salesman, Canode waited 16 months after the marriage before insuring Nancy. And I imagine that the police looked at this as well, especially considering the policy was taken out, like I said, just two months before Nancy was murdered. Canode ended up collecting around $160,000 from that policy. It was discovered that he used those funds to rent a house for his first wife and her children. So I read her children in one report and their children in another. Do you know if he had kids of his own? Um, From the Cold Justice episode where they interviewed his first wife, it was mentioned that he had a son with her and that she also had a son from a previous relationship. and. Talking about the insurance policy, I also wonder if Nancy knew about the insurance policy that was out on her life. Yeah, I do too. That's an interesting point. Well, I just I just found all of that very strange. Also, further investigation into Canode revealed that he was having an affair at the time of Nancy's murder with a woman by the name of Carol Farley. In fact, Canode and Farley left for a trip to Breckenridge Resort just hours after Nancy's funeral. Another oddity was that Canode signed the resort register as Ken Farley. He also gave Carol a diamond necklace that once belonged to Nancy. When the investigators from Cold Justice interviewed Carol years later, she denied having any knowledge of the trip and didn't know the necklace had been Nancy's. She said that Canode only told her his wife had been killed, but did not confess to murdering her. As investigators began taking a harder look at Canode, he stopped cooperating and hired a lawyer. The family of Nancy lost touch with Canode, who later changed his name to Kenneth Alexander. They have made no attempts to regain contact. Since Nancy's death, Canode, nee Alexander, has been married six times with several of the wives claiming that they were left in emotional and financial ruin by the end of their relationships. They described him as a smooth-talking, charming man who showered them with attention and gifts, but they came to realize he was just a con artist. Canode's first wife, Letha Shoemaker, said that he stole the money from her son's surgery during their marriage. They divorced in 1979. Schumacher claimed that a week before Nancy's murder, Canode visited her and told her he was unhappy in his marriage and would do anything to get out of his marriage. Stephen Tweet Burroughs, the husband of Shoemaker's cousin, Deb, claimed that Canode offered him 10000 to murder Nancy. And I read a report that stated Tweet passed a polygraph at the request of investigators. Schumacher is the ex that Canode used the insurance money to rent a house for. In an interview Canode gave to the Times Union in March of 2009, he denied abandoning any of his wife and was surprised that the women felt, quote, hostile towards him. He admitted he may have caused them emotional hardships. A review of Canode's criminal records show a conviction in 1993 for abusing his sixth wife and another conviction in 1994 for embezzling while he was working as a property manager in Illinois. He is now retired and living in Texas, and he said he hopes the murder is solved one day, adding, quote, it depends on what direction it would go. At the time, DNA testing wasn't available, and unfortunately, once it was available, 
the DNA evidence was unusable because it had not been stored properly. In 2010, money was allocated to help law enforcement solve cold cases. Detective Sean Tice decided to reopen Nancy's case, determined to find her killer. Tice went to Texas and interviewed Canote again, but was unable to gain any new information. In 2015, the TV show Cold Justice aired an episode on Nancy's case. Former prosecutor Kelly Siegler and former CSI Yolanda McClary met with Detective Tice and by the end of the joint investigation came to the same conclusion, that Kenneth Canode was the killer. Unfortunately, when the case was presented to State Attorney R.J. Larissa, he declined to file charges against Canode, citing the age of the case, the mostly circumstantial evidence, and the lack of eyewitnesses or a confession. I can understand his reasoning, but we all know of cases with less circumstantial evidence that have gone to trial and obtained guilty verdicts. Personally, in my humble opinion, after all this time, why not take a shot? I mean, the case only is going to get older, and as the saying goes, nothing ventured, nothing gained, though I have a feeling that Canode may not agree. Yeah, right. (laughs) Nancy's family is determined to see justice in this case. Unfortunately, Nancy's mother, Josephine Cantor, died before she could see this happen. Daughters Suzanne and Sherry have a Facebook justice for Nancy Canode and have an ongoing letter-writing campaign. They have sent letters to the state attorney, Larissa, the governor, and the attorney general. At the end of the podcast, we will have more information on how you can help. Yeah, and so we were able to speak with Suzanne and Cherie by phone this week and ask them for their insight on the case and some memories of their mom. We recognize that the quality of the audio is not the best, but we felt it was important for Suzanne and Cherie to be the voice for their mom and talk about the frustrations they're experiencing in seeking justice in their own words. So we want to welcome and and thank Suzanne Spate for joining us today to talk about the case of her mother's murder. So welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. Good to be here. Unfortunately, Cherie was unable to join us, but we're going to go ahead and just jump in with some of our questions. So tell us about your mom. When and where was she born? Did she have siblings? And when did she meet your dad? My mom was born in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I think she was born around, it was 1941. And uh, we're all from Jacksonville. My grandparents uh, lived here, uh, you know, after she died. And um, she met my dad in high school. They graduated uh, from Jackson High School in Jacksonville. And they were high school sweethearts. And so got married uh, shortly after high school. And uh, she was married to my dad. And they had me and my brother and my sister. But then, unfortunately, they divorced in around uh, 1978. So could you tell us what are some of your favorite memories about your mom? My mom was always uh, beautiful. I know that every child thinks their mom is beautiful, but she really was exceptionally attractive. And um, the homeroom mom, like all the kids would be like, your mom's so pretty. She looked like uh, Wonder Woman. Linda, Linda Carter had the TV show Wonder Woman at that time in the 70s. And yeah, she did. And um, she was just always very caring and just a great person. I noticed from the picture, she was exceptionally beautiful. And yeah, she did look like Linda Carter, come to mm-hmm. think of it. Was there anything, you know, that you enjoyed that your mother and you enjoyed doing together um, or that Cherie and, and the, the three of you or, and your brother as well enjoyed doing together as a family? Did she have hobbies? We used to go camping uh, when my parents were still married when I was younger. We had a pop-up camper and uh, they had some other friends that had families with kids our age. And so, yeah, we went camping in South Georgia. I remember when Disney World opened here in Florida. It had uh, Fort Wilderness, and so we went camping there, and that was fun. She liked the outdoors, uh, liked to collect seashells on the beach. I remember, yeah, her and I did go to the beach before and and collect shells. And uh, she, uh, yeah, she was just a very caring person. I remember we had a, a housekeeper, and this was the early 70s, and and rather than her take the bus on some difficult days, my mom would drive her home. And so we would drive into the part of town where we would normally 
not go at that time. Um, and so, but that was normal for me. We met their family. I met their kids. My mom was that kind of person. Oh, she sounds lovely. Well, we know it's very difficult, even after all of these years, to talk about. And uh, you both were so young, you and Cherie. We've read the newspaper reports, but would you walk us through that day? I was in 10th grade, and it was 1981, and I uh, came home from school. I, I was about 15, yeah, I was 15, and I turned on the radio, you know, let myself in, turn on the radio, go to the kitchen. I got some cheese and an apple. So I hang out downstairs for a bit, and then I shout, Mom, you know, hey, I'm home. So I started to go up the stairs. We had a two-story condo. And then I saw her feet, or as I go to the top of the stairs, I see her feet. And so I obviously know something's wrong. And something just kept me from going further, which was a blessing. So I, I just figure she's fallen, heart attack or something. So I run back downstairs. I called, probably called operator. There was no 911 at that time. I think I called my father. Then I ran out in the street and just, you know, yelled and the neighbors came out. And then can't remember how long it took for the police to arrive. But so I'm just standing outside with the neighbors. And uh, the later they take me to my neighbor's house and probably a policeman or someone sits me down and tells me what happened that my mom had uh, was dead. And I just remember, yeah, yelling and saying that's not true and just being really frantic and upset. Then later my my dad did, you know, he came from the other side of town, came and picked me up. How did the day start off? Did it start off normally? Was there anything unusual about the way that the day began? Not that I recall. It was just a normal day where I would go to the neighbor's house, a girl named Tanya. We're still friends now um, on Facebook. We've reconnected. Tanya Thompson lived uh, next door, and her and I would go to the bus stop together. So, no, there's nothing I remember that it was out of the ordinary. And how was it after the scene? I understand that your stepfather had been out of town, but that the police escorted him back? Yes, he said he was out of town on business. And I know that they did interview me, the detectives uh, investigating the case sometime later in 1981. They have a voice recording of me as my 15-year-old self, which is funny because my voice has not changed. <laughs> I listened to that um, I listened to that recording a few years ago, and my voice does sound the same. But they interviewed me about the morning, and so although my memory, of course, has faded now, I know that I did give the information that I recalled at that time but yeah, my stepfather had said that he was out of town. It remains a mystery as to how he knew to come back, how he knew that there was a crime or, or something happening at, at our home. But yeah, he did come back and the police were there. And how was his demeanor when he arrived? Did he seem frantic? Did he seem upset? I don't recall, but um, just through others uh, over the years looking at the case file and speaking to detectives, I believe that no, he did not seem upset. I believe he asked to come in and I'm fairly certain they let him come in to the crime scene. That must have been difficult because, I mean, that seems like that's uh, even back in the 80s that they would secure the crime scene and not let the husband or anybody trek through there. It does seem unusual. Um, a couple things. I mean, uh, you know, St. John's County is a wealthy county and probably had rarely seen a murder, uh, certainly not like there is today. So maybe those those officers and detectives probably was their first crime scene to that extent. Well, another question is that he's never really inquired, to my knowledge, about what happened to his wife. Like my sister and I, over these years have continued to pursue justice and inquire, but he's never inquired about the case to my knowledge. Hmm. So Suzanne, where did you go to live afterwards? Did you continue to live with your stepfather until you finished high school? 
No, I do recall. I really only saw him twice after that. He did have to take me to my my school uh, to sign out and, you know, just get my records or whatever. So I remember him picking me up that day and, and doing that and then taking me back to my dad's house. And then, so yeah, I lived with my dad and my stepmother in Jacksonville, which where we had lived with my mom and my stepfather was Ponte Vedra Beach. It was the beach community just south of Jacksonville. So I, I didn't have to go far. I mean, I just came into town to live with my uh, dad and my stepmother because he, of course, they were divorced and he had already remarried as well. And then um, I just saw him again. My stepfather, I saw him at the funeral. But other than that, no, I never saw him again. How involved were you and Cherie in the months and years after your mom's murder? Did you receive regular updates on the investigation? Well, it seems to me that being so young, she was 19. Our brother, uh, Steve, he was 21, I believe, at the time. And I was 15. And so being so young and such traumatic times, I think we all just kind of went our own ways and really didn't talk about it, kind of just sort of put it under the rug and really didn't do anything. We didn't have counseling, therapy, just did not really revisit it until around 2005, my sister Cherie ran into somebody that had remembered the case. It was somebody's wife, and her husband worked for the sheriff's office down there in St. John's County. And she's like, oh, yeah, everybody remembers that case. When You know, you should really look back into it. And um, I said, you know, we should. And so her and I, my sister Cherie and I, in 2005, approached the St. John's County Sheriff's Office to say, you know, can you really look at this cold case and, and see what happened? And at that time, I don't think we had a real suspect in mind. They had uh, the detective, the first initial detective, had pursued a serial killer theory for a, a number of years. There was a guy named Henry Lee Lucas, who was a crazy serial killer. And he, at times, would say that it was him, or but then other times he would say, no, I lied. And so he kind of led them on a goose chase. I mean, Henry Lee Lucas and his partner, they did commit crimes in Florida. But um, so they kind of went down a rabbit hole for a number of years with that. That's really interesting because I've listened to other podcasts about them and their crimes and they would latch on to these different murders and, and say that they did them when they weren't even a vi- really a viable suspect. Right, right. Just part of his own mentally ill personality, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we in 2005 uh, said, can you look at the case? And then um, it quickly, you know, started to sort of look like there's just one suspect. There was an insurance policy on her that my stepfather had taken out. And I, I, I believe it was in January. And then she died in March. And it was a double indemnity policy where her manner of death enabled him to double the amount uh, of, so he received $200,000 in this policy that he had taken out only a few months prior. The kids, between me and my sister and brother, we got 40000 So that would leave him with 160000 And uh, just over the years, other just indications that it seems... Uh, there is no other suspect to, in our mind at this time. I did find that the insurance policy, that was very interesting to me because in the statements that we read when he was asked, why did you take out the insurance policy? And, and he said, you know, well, I was an insurance salesman and it just seemed like it was the right thing to do. And my first thought was like, well, did he take out an insurance policy on himself as well? He was the one that was probably more at risk with his travel and everything. And your mom was a stay-at-home mother at the time, right? Or a stay-at-home wife. And so it wouldn't seem like, one, that she would leave a risky life, but two, that the policy paying double if she died in a, a violent death, that seems to me even more interesting. They had been married 
for a significant amount of time before he actually took that policy out, then the murder happened very shortly after that. So, I mean, if it was something that he felt like, in my mind, that he felt like was imperative that he have to secure your girl's future or whatever it was, it didn't seem like it really, I mean, it benefited you a little bit, but not as much as he benefited. And she wasn't providing any kind of income. So, I don't know, I just found the whole thing about the insurance policy a very interesting part of the whole case. Yeah, my sister was the main, uh, I mean, he's a beneficiary, but I guess she was the co-beneficiary, which also didn't make sense because my brother was 21 and a male, and so he should have been uh, on there. And so we suspect that she never signed that policy, that um, she was not aware of it. But these are just our family's suspicions. That your mom wasn't aware of the policy? Correct, because I don't. I believe one, she would have told my brother and sister about it, and two, she would have made my brother the the the, sec, the co-beneficiary. That would make sense. He was more of an adult. He was at the police academy at that time, and um, Cherie, when she did have to sign and receive the policy, uh, her lawyer at that time tried to tell her, "This is probably something you should try to." maybe get more money or this is not exactly legitimate. But again, we were young and, and grieving. And and then that same lawyer became a judge. He's still currently a judge in Jacksonville. And he remembers the case as well. And he remembers thinking it was suspect. But Cherie just said, I'm just going to sign and get, you know, go, go forth and just put this behind me. That's understandable. In 2008, a new investigator, Sean Tice, was assigned to the case. How were you feeling at that point? Well, I was feeling a little frustrated uh, with the St. John's County Sheriff. The first two detectives seem motivated, and they're like, we care, and we're really going to try to get to the bottom of this. But then they transferred. Uh, the first guy was named Bobby Jean, and he transferred to a different department without letting us know. And so, you know, we would check in periodically every few months. So a few months goes by, and we check in, and they're like, oh, he's no longer here. So then you got to start with somebody else. And so Sean Tice was really the third person. So by that time, I was just, like, very uh, disgusted with the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. But Sean Tice really won us over. I mean, he clearly did and still does care about the case. And I remember, so we started again in 2005. So it was finally 2010 where Tice had worked on it a couple of years. And I remember him calling me because uh, I was on vacation at the beach. And I just remember specifically answering the phone. And he's like, I really feel good about the presentation that I'm going to make to the state attorney. I think I've got all my ducks in a row. I really feel like we have a good uh, case to take uh, the suspect to a grand jury. And so, um, but at that time in 2010, Sean Tice went to the state attorney. His name is um, R.J. Larissa in that county in St. John's County. And he said, um, no, that there was no physical evidence and there was not enough evidence to do anything with the case. So he said no, that he would not take the case to a grand jury. So you mentioned R.J. Larizza and his reluctance to take your mom's case. What do you think the reason was that he was so reluctant to look into this case and put more energy into it? As you said before, it wasn't like there were murders happening all the time back then. So you'd think that this would be more of a significant case. We initially really did not understand why he would... Uh, not want to take it further. My current thought is that he just, it's an old case that he may not win. It's a difficult circumstantial case. It, there, that's true. There is no physical evidence, but other prosecutors and other people we've spoken to uh, would, would say, yes, I would take it as a circumstantial case. And, um, you know, we just feel like maybe today's prosecutors really just want to take cases that they feel they could win, especially something that could be a high-profile case. And so um, we had gone, but again, I, I did, I think Sean Tice did an excellent job, really um, put forth the effort, 
So then after that initial meeting with RJ, where he says no, our family asked to meet with him personally. And so we brought my grandmother, who at that time was probably around 93, and um, came to Daytona Beach. Like, he has offices all over, but we drove a few hours to meet with him. And he just said, no, you know, there's not enough evidence. And so we had some terse words at that time. My grandmother was upset. I was upset. And so I'm sure I did not win him over in my reaction to that. And then um, later, uh, we went to the new, we've gone to the news media, the local newspaper and television a few times over the years. And the sheriff uh, kind of perhaps said that he was more on our side, and then it became a not a good story. So the sheriff had to back off. And so there's been a lot of back and forth drama between us and the state attorney office uh, over the years. Um, that was 2010. Then in 2013, there was a lady that ran against him. So uh, we made a campaign commercial for her and we wanted her to win. Someone new to look at the case. Um, but then she did not win, and we had made that commercial for her. So again, I'm sure there's been some bad blood between us over the years, although I'm sure it's not personal. I mean, um, I, I believe he, you know, he truly believes that he would not win the case, but we just really feel like we deserve our shot at justice. And there is no serial killer. There is no other suspect. So even if it does not ultimately turn out we would like that that chance yeah i've seen a lot of cases you know just based purely on circumstantial be looked at and go to trial and actually get a conviction but it also seems like the phone call that happened earlier in the day do you want to tell us about that 911 phone call and some of the other circumstantial evidence that there is well i know my mother did call operator that morning and said that she was had an emergency at her house. It was the operator. And that operator is still alive. And they interviewed her about the phone call. And then they sent the police. They did not come particularly quickly, I believe. And then when they did come, they just sort of drove around the front and didn't really come in. And so I believe that my stepfather uh, sued that county office later uh, in order to get money, but he sued them for the lack of response. Um, I don't know how that relates really to evidence, but I know that she did in fact call 911 or call the operator. And then another questionable thing is the fact that he was aware that an incident had happened at his residence. He said that a gentleman called him that was a friend who worked for Southern Bell. And, well, there is no cell phones in 1981. So if he's out of town, how does this guy's name was Jimmy Stokes, who works for Southern Bell, how does he even know how to reach him or where he would be at, which insurance place? But he said that Jimmy Stokes had gotten in touch with him and, and realized that there was an emergency happening at his house. Well, over all those years, no one... This was probably in 20, around 2012. No one had ever talked to Jimmy Stokes. I Googled him <laughs> and just found him myself. And he still lived in an area around town. And so Sean Tice and his group went out and talked to him. And he's like, hell no, I never called him to say that there was something happening in his house. He's like, that would be unethical and, and I would never do that, even if I could, even if I knew where he was. And so that's, you know, how did he know? Because he otherwise would have come back at the end of the day, at a normal work day, or whenever he was supposed to come back from um, Georgia. But now he showed up, you know, at the crime scene, knowing that there was a crime. But Jimmy Stokes never told him there was a crime. So we had read that the police had actually driven to Georgia and then escorted him back. But again, like, how did he know to contact the police? Or, you know, how, what, what was that connection? So do you think part of the problem is that in 
in the recent years, DNA plays such a big role in convicting people. Did they find any kind of DNA evidence that could be tested now or anything that might be more concrete, not so circumstantial? I mean, I think it's a very strong circumstantial case, in my opinion, and I've seen others convicted on less. But I know that it's been mentioned in recent years that juries want to see DNA evidence. Well, we all lived in the house, and the weapon was a kitchen knife and uh, other items that were in the house. And so him and her and I all lived in the house. And to my knowledge, there is no third-party DNA. So there is no serial killer. I mean, uh, but none of the DNA that they've been able to test um, has had an impact. I, I don't really understand the, you know, the complexities of it. I mean, I know that his DNA probably would have been on a kitchen knife, as would have mine and hers. But um, it hasn't worked out to the extent that it would make an impact. I know they have had the weapon tested at the FDLE and and looked at DNA, but maybe it does have to do with the fact that we all live there anyway. I would think that even the lack of other DNA would be significant, right? Was there any DNA on her body that they had recovered or tested? Yes, I believe there was. And Shantice has tried to explain that to me as to why DNA isn't helping the case, but I don't understand it. But yeah, I believe there was DNA. And um, nothing was stolen, you know, like it it was kind of looked like a robbery, but she had jewelry. There were all things that could have been stolen. Nothing was stolen. You know, he had received that money from the insurance policy. And then he was quickly uh, short of money, not long after. And we have relatives and people that we went to church with in that area that said he came to them to borrow money, not long after he had received that insurance settlement. So clearly, you know, he had a reason to need the money and and continued to spend money and run out of money. And I will mention that we were on a television show called Cold Justice in 2015, which uh, we felt very privileged to be on because I know they can select any case that I'm sure they get a million submissions to be on the show. A lady named Kelly Siegler, she still is on the show today. So they came out and and wanted to do an episode about our case. And they said the insurance policy is a crucial document, which unfortunately no one's ever been able to find an actual paper document of it because that company had gone out of business and then had so many different turnovers of different companies. It's just no longer around. And um, so that was, they spent some of the time there looking for the policy They interviewed some of my stepfather's ex-wives. To my knowledge, he's been married or in relationships eight times. And several of the ladies had similar stories where he took all their money and made them afraid for their life. To my knowledge, no one else had died. But uh, the whole show, which is on YouTube, it's uh, Operator Help. It's called Justice Operator Help is the name of the the episode. and. You know, that episode really paints a picture of of the circumstantial evidence. And Kelly Siegel herself is uh, a retired prosecutor, well-respected in Texas, done many a circumstantial case. And so I don't think they would have selected our case if they did not feel like it had a value of being able to go to a grand jury. So that's what's been frustrating with R.J. LaRizza, is that people like Kelly Siegel, and then most recently, there is a uh, prosecutor, a statewide prosecutor, Cass Castillo, and he's interested in the case. And if RJ would allow him to take over the case, he said that his office would pay for it and they would take it as it is, as a circumstantial case. But RJ Larissa still says no, that he will not swear anyone else in that it is his responsibility, the case is, and that he's not going to do anything with it. So that's been like the latest of where we're at. And so time is of the essence, we really feel, because the only suspect is 
probably like my own father is 80. So I imagine he's somewhere between 78, 84. Time is of the essence. Everyone, the witnesses are getting old, the suspects getting old. And we really just uh, are, are hoping for, uh, for a change of heart or uh, for some miracle. And Larissa is probably just waiting for the suspect to pass away and everything to just go away. I still just don't understand why, if he himself doesn't want to take the case, why he doesn't relinquish it to anybody else. It's considered a cold case, and that's what Cass Castillo does, right? Well, he's a statewide prosecutor. That's what he specializes in. So he can pick any case from Miami to Tallahassee, and he's interested in our case. He's expressed an interest in our case through um, a nonprofit organization called Project Cold Case. There's a guy named Ryan that runs Project Cold Case, and um, he kind of connected us with Cask Castillo. And yeah, Cask can look at any case, and he's like, I think I could take on this. So he had to officially meet with the state attorney's office, and um, then our family asked to be to talk to them as well. And RJ sent a representative, and that uh, gentleman said, you know, no, RJ feels like it's his responsibility. So that's just tremendously frustrating. Because if the person, you know, wants to take it on, you would think that state attorney's office would be glad to get these ladies off his back. (laughs) Because my sister and I will continue to work the issue until until the suspect passes on or until we find justice. Because, um, so right now, uh, before COVID-19, that was our focus, was we were on the news locally where a news reporter talked about our issue uh, with our standstill, you know, with RJ Lewis's office. And so now, you know, we are doing some podcasts. Uh, we have written letters to the governor before. Um, we're not sure what our next, um, next strategy will be, but we're not going to stop because we feel like someone needs to take the case to a grand jury and let the, um, you know, let the people decide. Now, sadly, we read that your grandmother passed away in 2013 without receiving any answers to this case. Hopefully, this case will come to conclusion before what we feel to be the main suspect passes away. What can our listeners do to help in that? Well, yeah, I do want to mention my grandmother. Uh, She lived to be 97. And she was an amazing lady, and it was very hard for her to lose her only daughter. And um, I just think she lived to be so uh, so many years. She was holding out for justice with us. She was part of our team. And then, uh, yeah, she did unfortunately pass away. But um, we have a, a Facebook page, Justice for Nancy Joe. But yeah, you'll see it out there. It's Justice for Nancy, and we kind of keep up the fight with that. And if we ever do a letter writing campaign to the Florida governor or another elected official, then that's the way we put the word out is on that Facebook page to ask people to write a letter to support us. I mean, we would potentially like for the governor to tell the state attorney that you have to give this over, but I'm not sure. It's probably not that simple. And, uh, but yeah, we, we continue to work with Project Cold Case. Uh, that's another great organization that, you know, we, we think anyone should support because they, uh, they support a number of cases around the country that uh, would otherwise not be heard of unless we got the word out. Well, we certainly thank you for taking time to speak with us and tell your side of the story, the versions that people don't usually see after the news media goes away. And uh-huh. so we really thank you. We'll definitely share the link to the Cold Justice episode and Project Cold Case and to the Facebook page so that anybody that would like to help, anybody that has any pool in Florida would be great trying to get the governor to get involved and make a decision. We would definitely welcome and support that. So is there anything else that you would like to add before we say goodbye? Well, uh, we just are holding out for justice. My mom was a lovely lady. Again, like I said, she married uh, my father right after high school. And that would have been probably the late 50s. And so she was living that 50s kind of lifestyle for a number of years. And then all of a sudden, she was beautiful and single in the 70s. So 
I think that sometimes I would look back in my mind and say, what were you thinking? Couldn't you see that this was not a good person? But um, I have to give her my understanding as an adult that, yeah, she was just out there and met the wrong person. And But uh, she deserves, yeah, deserves justice. Well, again, we want to thank you for taking time out to talk to us about this case. We're trying to shed a light on some of these unsolved cases and lesser known cases. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And um, if there's anything that we can do in the meantime, or if there's anything that, you know, our listeners can do, we'll be keeping an eye on the Facebook page. Just let us know. We're happy to help. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Our hearts go out to Suzanne and Cherie, and we want to do whatever we can to help them get justice for their mom. We will post a link to the Justice for Nancy Facebook page in our show notes and on our website. We know there is a lot of craziness going on right now, but if you could find it in your hearts to help these sisters get justice for their mom, please consider emailing them a letter. We would love to put all of your voices together to help them get heard. So with that, that's the end of our podcast. Debbie, do you have anything else that you would like to add? No, sounds good to me. So we're currently putting out about one podcast a month. If that changes, we'll make an announcement. So until then, make good choices, keep your head on a swivel, and stay safe. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime on Our Minds. Check out our Facebook page and website at truecriminds.com where you can see photos and other information related to episodes and submit recommendations on other crimes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and provide us with a rating. You can also find us on Patreon and sign up to get extra content and support the show.